This is a Cherish podcast, and I'm your host, Michael Boudreau. I'll be taking you for an inside look behind the glamorous facade of the interior design industry. At a time when every aspect of the business, from sourcing to trends to marketing to dealing with clients, is undergoing rapid change. Real estate and interior design are intimately connected. Their highs and lows come in tandem. People hire designers when they buy or sell or renovate. But what happens when the real estate market is in the doldrums when, like today, mortgage rates are high, inflation is persistent, and home prices and rents remain high? What is the current state of real estate? I have with me today three experts who know the ins and outs of the high-end real estate market and who have seen it skyrocket and shrink more than once. Leonard Steinberg is a 25-year veteran of the industry and in 2004 was a founder and president of the New York-based firm Urban Compass. Today, known simply as Compass, the public company has grown to become a nationally recognized brand with more than 325 offices throughout the USA and over $250 billion in sales volume in 2021. Leonard and his experienced team represent some of New York City's most prestigious real estate and have worked with numerous developers and architects, including Tadeo Ando, Annabel Seldorf, and Sir Norman Foster. Welcome, Leonard. Hi, how are you? Great. Back for her second appearance on the podcast is Amanda Pendleton of Zillow. After a career in television journalism, Amanda joined Zillow in 2019 and now serves as its home trends expert. Amanda translates Zillow's housing market data into actionable advice for home buyers, sellers, and renters using economic and population and behavioral science research to stay on top of the shifting real estate market so that people can make more informed, data-driven decisions. Welcome back, Amanda. That's great to be back. Thanks, Michael. Finally, I'm pleased to have with us Mickey Alam Khan, an expert on the luxury real estate market and until recently president of the Luxury Portfolio, a network of the world's premier luxury real estate brokerages and their top agents. He's also a founder and editor-in-chief of Luxury Daily, so he has a firm grasp of the high-end market and all its many permutations. Hello, Mickey. Thank you so much, Michael. So pleased to be on this panel. So, Leonard, why don't we start with you? Because I follow real estate fairly closely. And I've been getting all sorts of, let's say, opposite things. We hear that, you know, residential sales are down 38% in Manhattan. You know, commercial real estate is dead. And yet, you know, their record prices are being set for in LA and New York. There's, you know, the high end is just super huge. You hear rents during COVID. Nobody wanted to be in the city. Now rents are through the roof. Give me your snapshot take on the real estate market today. Well, thanks for having me. And I think the curse of the consumer is having all these averages and headlines. They're really extraordinarily misleading. And there is no such thing as an average when it comes to real estate. Real estate is a hyper-localized industry. And what happens in Malibu is going to be different to Manhattan. That's going to be different to Miami. But I think this is a real problem we have in that there is such a struggle between certain media entities to garner a headline that people come up with sound bites and headlines that are so scary and so unspecific that they provide a picture that is very, very um, confusing to the consumer. So my advice always is 
don't read the headlines, get into the specifics, get into the detail, because in that you will find a very, very different varying story. I think last week, especially, there were some really big names that came out with bold, salacious headlines, but <laughs> the meltdown and the destruction of real estate, and it was so scary that even it scared me. And the headline mentioned no word about commercial, they were referring to commercial, and none of the content even took note that the area of greatest concern within commercial is office. And yes, office is under a lot of pressure right now because of the work from home trend, but they never mentioned, not one mentioned, that office is 16% of the entire commercial picture. And the other 84% data centers, facilitation warehouses, all other sorts of commercial real estate are doing really well. Even retail is starting to do well in certain areas. So I would say the curse of the consumer is a media headline and averages. Avoid them. Okay. So there is hope. There's always hope. Okay, great. So Amanda, you have a, a national view of things. So I'd love to get your take on what's going on. Again, headlines, great stories. According to New York Times, they're saying that younger people are leaving the coastal cities, that this coastal city become too pricey, and they're moving to smaller cities like Louisville or Atlanta, not that that's such a small city, St. Louis, and that that's going to have a bad impact on major cities. So what have you been seeing from Cipsillo Research? It's not so much that millennials are moving from these big cities to these smaller cities. Instead, what we're seeing at Zillow is a real move to affordability. You know, rental market trends are a pretty good indicator of where people are moving, especially in cities, and especially among younger generations who are typically renters. And you're right, Michael, there was this clear shift away from big cities like New York and San Francisco early on in the pandemic, and we saw rents fall in those markets. That was, you know, through a combination of people moving away and college students and other young adults moving back home with their parents and really a lack of people moving back in to replace all the people who left. But that trend reversed in 2021 and rents rose at a record pace, suggesting, you know, people were once again moving back into the cities. But there's still a lot of variation in big city rent growth. You know, we're seeing rents are up 8.5% year over year in the Boston metro area, but they're only up 2.1% in the San Francisco area. More affordable northeastern and midwestern cities are really seeing the highest rent price growth right now. And that's really an indicator of demand, right? So, you know, think Providence or Hartford, Cincinnati, Kansas City, Indianapolis, Milwaukee. Those places, along with Boston, have been the most resilient metros in the country since the market started cooling down more than a year ago because they're more affordable. So on the flip side, you know, we're seeing the weakest year-over-year -year rent price growth happening in the mostly expensive West Coast markets, right? The places that also exploded during the pandemic and then became unaffordable. So rents are down in those pandemic boom towns like Las Vegas, Austin, and Phoenix, and then also in really pricey cities like San Francisco. Yeah. I think when you were on two years ago, Austin was like the hottest city in the United States and people were moving there in droves and prices. I mean, I even did a podcast, Austin Stay Weird, because so many people were moving in there in tech money. But that's slowing down, you're saying, because it's I guess it's when every town reaches a point where they price themselves out of the market. Is that fair to say? 
It is. You know, I think certain markets have affordability ceilings, and we saw Austin hit that affordability ceiling. We're now seeing year-over-year home values are down 10% in Austin. That's the highest decline in the country. So, yeah, I think Austin just became unaffordable for too many people, and that's really hurt demand. Right. Now, Mickey, one of the things I want to ask you about is the luxury market, because, you know, our audience is largely interior designers, not all, thank God, but largely interior designers and interior designers tend to be have more high end clients who have high end properties. And one of the things I don't understand, and maybe you can enlighten me, is that most people who are buying a 50 million dollar penthouse or a hundred million dollar house in Malibu, they don't need mortgages. We keep hearing that mortgage rates, you know, have gone up. As they were as high as 7%, although maybe they're stabilizing, we don't know. But those people don't need mortgages. And yet we hear that there's still not so much activity on the high end or there's not in, that much on the market. Could you address that? Yeah, I will. Thank you, Michael. Both Amanda and Leonard have alluded to this, but when you're at that level of wealth, a mortgage doesn't matter. Yeah, It's I mean, all cash. But they also have options and choices, right? So you're not looking at New York or you're looking at Boston. You're looking at Paris. You're looking at London. You're looking at different parts of the world. And at that level, money is fluid. It moves back and forth. So the ultra-wealthy are kind of insulated from ups and downs as long as their stock market portfolio holds up, the value of their artwork holds up, like, uh, you know, high jewelry holds up. So they're kind of insulated from the... Uh, vagaries of mortgage rates and all that. In the last three years, I mean, during the pandemic, travel was restricted. Now you check the numbers. I mean, people are traveling left, right, and center from the US to Europe to Asia, back and forth. You're seeing a lot of these people spend time, you know, and buy yachts and jets. And I mean, those sales have gone through the roof. And what are people doing? They're basically buying homes. In fact, many people now, you know, they bought in speculation and, you know, in the Hamptons, that's happened, right? These guys can't rent these homes at these outrageous rates. But the ultra wealthy, for them, they have three or four homes or five homes. They have a yacht. They spend a lot of time in air. So for them, it's a different economic situation. It's a different dynamic. I don't see any changes there. The only thing we have to be very careful of is, you know, the high net worth individuals, they always like security. They always like to make sure that wherever they go, there's no crime. And, you know, that really does impact. Like San Francisco has taken a major hit because of the crime situation, as Leonard pointed out, the darn headlines. Because, you know what, I know who he was alluding to. I mean, I shouldn't name her, but, you know, uh, you know, I just, uh, just go ahead. Name. Uh, no, 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 I don't, I don't want to name it. But you know, he's right. It's about the commercial real estate market. You can't conflate the two. And even with the commercial market, as long as the investment banks and all these major financial institutions insist on their senior executives coming back to office for at least three to four days a week, you're going to see that number inch upwards from 40 to 50% to about 60%. We do need about 70% to be in the office for the commercial market to stabilize a bit. But in terms of housing, all these folks who left major cities and spent time in their resort towns or in their second or third homes, guess what? They're back in town because their hometowns have better schools. They want to be around people. Ultra-wealthy people are very social. So you're not going to see a situation where that market collapses. Absolutely not. Okay. But Leonard, for those of us who aren't in the ultra-high-end wealth market, 
what what do you think is happening? Because you know, I read that Manhattan sales, for example, are down thirty eight percent. Yet during the COVID, a lot of people moved to the suburbs or bought country houses and moved up there. But now we hear that there's buyers remorse, people are moving back to the city. And yet I know there's still a bidding wars for properties in the suburbs and, you know, Bedford, Westchester, Northwest Connecticut, and all that. So where do you think people, did they try the country life and didn't like it? Do they, what's going on? <laughs> Look, that's the whole point. You cannot make these broad sweeping statements. And I also think when you read the headline, down 38% in volume. What is that to do with this? Are there fewer buyers or is there lesser inventory and fewer choices? When you read recently that Austin is down 10%, how high did Austin rise before it dipped 10%? What we're experiencing around the globe right now is the global rebalancing after a massive global pandemic that killed millions of people, that shut down economies, disrupted supply chains, caused extreme turmoil, both geopolitically and otherwise. And these things take time. So where some people said that inflation is transitory, they may have been wrong, but they might have been right as well, that these huge surges in prices just are pulling back in areas to more normal, more realistic levels. I think one of the big areas that is of concern is that there is a bigger demand on more affordable homes, not just because of what people can afford, but what they want to afford. So you have 10,000 people retiring every day. The baby boomers are in retirement mode. COVID accelerated that. When people retire, they revisit different parts of the country where they want to live. Some of them maybe want two homes. You sell a big home, you want to buy two smaller homes. You are now competing with the millennial entry-level buyer, and that poses even further pressure on the inventory supply there. Another big concern we have is that just like Hermes makes super expensive product because their margins are 40%. That's a very profitable business to be in. Builders generally don't want to build cheaper houses because they aren't as profitable as selling and building bigger expensive homes that take as much time, aggravation, and energy to bring to the market. So we have some big fundamental issues. And you know what? I always think that anyone who can buy a home is buying a luxury. So I think the fact that we focus exclusively on this, in Manhattan, we have this thing where everyone focuses on the $4 million plus market. That is not even 5% of the entire market in New York City, which is a very expensive city. So I think this obsession with the very, very expensive drives headlines, gets people very engaged. But I do believe that the consumer would be much better served if they got into the specifics, if they wanted to make really educated decisions and choices around what they want to do around real estate. Right. But Amanda, I want to ask you this. We keep hearing, or at least I keep reading, again, with Leonard's bad headlines that he's right to point out. But I, we, we keep reading that there's a lot of people who would like to move, sell their property, find a new one, but they feel they're kind of a prisoner because they may have like a 3% or a 4% mortgage rate. And if they were to sell it and buy a new place, they're going to have to pay, you know, 6 or 7%, which when you actually break it down, is can be a big change in your monthly nut. I mean, up a thousand, fifteen hundred, two thousand dollars more a month. So is that true? to begin with? And what would your advice be to people in that situation? Yeah, no, we are seeing that rate lock is a real thing. 
And we know it because this spring, buyers have come back to the market. They've accepted these higher mortgage interest rates, but sellers haven't. Because as you said, sellers locked in that ultra low 3% mortgage rate, and now they don't want to trade it in for today's much higher rate. It's almost impossible for a seller today to trade up and pay a similar monthly payment. So sellers are really holding back, and that means there just aren't that many homes for sale right now, and that's pushing up prices. And yes, in certain cities, we're starting to see those pandemic-era bidding wars come back for the most affordable starter homes. So I do think it's real. I think sellers aren't selling unless they absolutely have to, but buyers are certainly back in the market and they're ready to buy. So if you are thinking about selling, this is a great time to get into the market because there are buyers out there. They're looking, they're eager, they want to buy, and prices are still incredibly strong right now. So, you know, you are going to be in a good position if you are ready to sell. Mm-hmm. May I just also add in there that where we speak to very high interest rates, that too is very relative to the fact that we had extremely low interest Mm -hmm. rates. And then we had extremely high interest rates. At one point, rates were approaching 20%, where all of a sudden, 6 and 7% looks like a bargain rate. I think the bigger issue, though, is that the one lesson COVID taught us seems to be the lesson we're forgetting soonest. Time is the last luxury. And the longer you wait, you never get those years back. So some people are putting their lives on hold, hoping that things change, which is human. And then what happens is things do change, but then you've lost a year or two or maybe even longer. And that is very, that's priceless. That's so true. First property I bought, I was paying 10% rate on the mortgage. And people said to me, oh my God, how did you get such a low rate? (laughs) 12% was, and this was in the 80s, I'm old, but... Now, 7%, 6% seems so high. And yes, it's certainly higher than 3%, but that was an anomaly. 3% was definitely an anomaly. And I think that that's a very valid point, Leonard. You're saying, okay, you're not going to buy. But meanwhile, you're paying rent for something, but the money you're never going to get back. And you're probably not in a home that makes you as happy as one that you bought would be. And rent is tied to inflation and the inflation rates are high and the recovery rate from COVID in the rental market is extreme, like almost some double digit gains in areas. So you are not protected in a rental for the most part and that can erode savings. And I listen, I remember reading the articles during COVID, people getting bargains on rents. Now, all those people who got bargains are being evicted or their rent is doubling or tripling and they can't afford it. That was a shock to me how quickly rents not only came back, but like doubled. It made me very glad I didn't rent. But our society is structured to support home ownership. Our tax laws support buying if you can afford it and and get that initial down payment and get a mortgage that will work for you. Renting is a mixed bag at best, shall we say. Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you're enjoying our podcast. My name is Anna Brockway, and I'm the co-founder and president of Cherish. If you're a designer who's struggling with long lead times from suppliers and increasingly impatient clients, now is the time to shop with us. Our vintage antique and one-of-a-kind inventory is ready to ship right now. To learn more, visit Cherish.com. That's C-H-A-I-R-I-S-H.com. And now back to the show. Mickey, I'd love to get a sense from you in terms of this high-end luxury. What are you people looking for now? Because I remember pre-COVID, all the new developers, and Leonard, I'd love for you to weigh in on this as well. Developers were building, shall we say, smaller 
private spaces. Bedrooms were smaller and new developments. Living rooms tend to be smaller, but there were all these amenities, you know, like a chef's kitchen that everyone could use, a gym. There was all this stuff. Then, of course, COVID changed everything because nobody could be around anyone. So all these communal amenities sort of fell by the wayside. So are developers now going back to that idea of more amenities for homeowners and new developments, high-end developments? What are they using to entice people? I don't think anything went away because, you know, if you look at all these developments, they take three to four years Mm -hmm. to come to life. And you look, the biggest trend I've seen in the last few years is branded developments. And I think Leonard and Amanda will attest to that is, you know, Miami has this Aston Martin residences and they've got the Bentley coming up. And I mean, this is a city that's sinking. (laughs) And, And if you see the sketches for the Bentley Tower, it's out of this world. And this guy's rolling the dice. And it's literally feet from the water. But what people want is hotel-like services in their homes. They want that extreme comfort. They want muted fabrics, uh, muted colors, no noise. They want frictionless services. They want concierge-level services with restaurants and, you know, in-house restaurants and all that. They want the ability to land their helicopter, and some buildings have helipads on top. It's basically everything that you'd have in a mansion or a house, you put it into an apartment, and you have a co-branded name, so the value is transferred to exquisite materials. Obviously, they want sustainability, too, with that, you know, make sure everything's recycled from the air to the water. The Aston Martin residences in in Miami, I visited the place. If you bought the unique penthouse for $50 million, you got a $3.2 million custom Aston Martin. The, uh, the I asked gift the developer. Gift with purchase, as I used to say, purchase, in retail. <laughs> gift, seriously. And then I... And exactly. Then I, uh, and I asked the developer, I said, what else do you have? He said, oh, we've got a yacht too, just for the residents. And I said, uh, so it's, he says, parked right outside. And I said, in case this gets flooded, he said, no. For pleasure. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but the fact is that, you know, that's what's happening across the board. You look at all these hotel groups and you look at the luxury brands. They're looking to parlay their names across real estate development. So I see that as a key development. So I think right now you're seeing a new Gilded Age at the ultra high net worth level. It really is a new Gilded Age. And if a pandemic couldn't stop them, if, uh, you know, issues with politics couldn't stop them, I think only a nuclear war can stop this meteoric rise of wealth. That's it. Nothing well, else right now. Let's hope we don't go there. Um, well, right. But, but someone has their bunkers on standby. Well, that's true. I've heard about that. And uh, helicopters to escape if necessary. But Leonard, you know, there's not a lot of helipads in Manhattan towers. So, you know, the density is way too great for that. So what about the New York market? What have you been seeing in terms of high end? there. Maybe not the $500 million penthouse, but the 10 to $50 million penthouse. Because it's interesting what Mickey was saying about branded, whereas in New York, you always hear about the architects, the ones that you work with. Oh, it's a Norman Foster. It's an Annabelle Seldorf. It's a Deborah Burke or, you know, building. Or it's a William a Stephen Harris building. The architect becomes brand in those cases. Do you think that's evolving? Are we going to have the Fendi Tower? We, we do have, you know, Armani kitchens, I know, in some of these buildings. 
Well, I think in New York, we fancy ourselves a little bit more cultured. Um, <laughs> but whatever that means. But whatever yeah. that means. But right. I think uh, for the longest time, star architecture really did produce a better quality building for the most part. And people saw the difference between a building designed by a world-class architect and others. And there's a difference, and they were willing to pay a price for that. Over the last decade, I would say the greatest trend has been people seeking a hotel-like experience within their home. I am beginning to see, because you know I come from fashion, so I'm always looking a few years down the road, I'm beginning to see a reverse now where hotels are trying to make their hotels seem more like homes. And a lot of people who are living in their homes that feel like hotels are beginning to look at their homes and think, but it looks like so many other homes. And this is becoming, I think, the greatest opportunity in the luxury market. How do you deliver something that's truly unique? And I think there was a quarterly report from, I think it was Bentley or Rolls-Royce, and they said their biggest growth opportunity by far in sales came via customization. So the sad truth of Manhattan is, which I think is a global trend, is that when you arrive and you think that you're the richest guy in town, all of a sudden you bump into a guy and he's much richer. Mm -hmm. So how do you up that? And there's only so far you can go, and then it's in customization, which I think your audience of designers comes in to create these very unique environments that are unique to their owner, very specific to their personality or their likes or dislikes that are a reflection of something different and special and maybe a reflection of their travels and experiences that makes for something you cannot replicate. And as we've seen in art auctions and in real estate, it's the type of real estate that is impossible to replicate that commands the highest price always. And that is, I think, where the super luxe audience's eyes are going now. We sold a few years ago a very, very important, massive, really expensive apartment. And the buyer stripped out all the details and flourishes that we read about in all the amenities, packages and websites and everything. He stripped it all down, exposed the concrete and put up the most extraordinary art collection. And all of a sudden he has a home now that none of his friends have. Oh. And that's a rival. That makes him memorable. Well, I'm so glad to hear you say that. And I'm sure a lot of our audience will be as well, because I understand what Mickey was saying about we want a hotel amenities, but to me, hotels can be very impersonal. And I always thought people's homes should be more personal. But as you were saying, like Kit Kemp is a good example for this. You know, her hotels are kind of funky and homey and English and very British and layered. And I think, you know, I mean, my one criticism of reading the real estate ads, which I do as kind of a domestic porn to almost, you know, oh, look at this one, look at that. A lot of them, everything is beige, everything is white, everything, you know, it's like it's become such a routine. And the defense of that is that's what sells. If it's too detailed, they can't see themselves in it or something. I don't understand. But, you know, but all billionaires are not created equal. So I think it's very true. dangerous to average rich people and say rich people want beige and hotel amenities. Right. Some do, some don't. Right. And I think in that, again, lies this misnomer that all millionaires, right. centimillionaires or billionaires are the same person. Right. right. And now I want to switch topics a little bit from the high end to affordable. And I mean, I'd love to ask you about this because... Again, reading the papers and whatever and online, there's all this excess of office, empty office space, and there's a shortage of affordable housing. And everyone says, well, let's put all these people into these 
office towers. And, you know, the Times actually did a brilliant thing online showing how easy or how difficult it is to convert an office building into residences. You know, the fact that office building maybe has two big bathrooms per floor, whereas every apartment that you put in a building has to have at least one bathroom, if not two. So it's not easy to do it. As they pointed out, older buildings, it's a little easier than the new ones where the windows don't open and all that. But Amanda, is the affordable house dead? I mean, it's like, it seems that there's such a shortage, even in Berkeley, California, people voting against building higher density, right, even by the transit station. How are we going to be able to make more affordable housing? Because a lot of designers start out designing less affordable apartments. So I'm sure that's of interest to a lot of our listeners as well. We know that we live in a world that isn't just all high end, even though Mickey, you do make it sound very attractive. You know, I want a helicopter pad too. <laughs> so what, what do you see happening across the country? Yeah, no, you're right. Bottom line, we need more homes to make housing more affordable for more people. Zillow estimates that there is a shortage of 1.35 million new single-family homes in the 35 largest U.S. housing markets. And that adds up to 2.7 years worth of housing permits at today's home building rate. So home builders are doing what they can. They know there's this unrelenting demand. They're firing on all cylinders, but they're really playing catch-up from years of underbuilding building that happened after the Great Recession. So the solution, obviously, is going to be multifaceted, but housing experts and economists think that relaxing some of these zoning rules to allow for ADUs, for duplexes and triplexes in areas that are zoned for single-family homes is ultimately the best way to address the housing affordability crisis. You know, it's called um, modest densification, if you've heard those words before. Zillow recently did a survey. We found that four in five Americans do support it to boost housing affordability. You know, this is not that scary 12-story apartment building that's going to go up across the street from your bungalow. You know, this is your neighbor down the street building a backyard cottage for a young couple who's going to be renting it, right? It's one solution to add housing, especially in a really densely packed urban area. Yeah, but it's like, I, I agree with you and I hope you're right, Amanda, but I mean, there is resistance. I mean, some of these buildings that have been voted down by train stations in the suburbs, Berkeley, that kind of thing, they're only talking about six-story buildings. We're not talking about towers. Leonard, do you think there's a lot of resistance in the suburban towns around the New York City area? The assumption is that when you do anything affordable, you're going to have a trailer park at the doorstep of mansions. And the reality is affordable housing doesn't have to be ugly, horrible housing with a trailer park. That is not necessarily reality. So I think we just need a different mindset. And the only way to sell that is to provide tangible examples of how this has worked elsewhere. But the reality is labor costs are way high, material costs are way high, and they're not going to go down when there's a $1 trillion infrastructure bill that is funded and being built for the next decade. We're grossly underbuilt. The zoning laws are archaic. Financing costs more. And government and the Fed are doing everything in their power to curtail development. That's a recipe for disaster. And that is actually a recipe for future massive housing inflation. There's only one way to cure affordability. You have to build lots. That's the only cure. The only cure. 
Often the only way to do that is via government stimulus of sorts, whether it's tax breaks or easing up zoning laws. But if that doesn't happen, housing will become even more expensive. And that doesn't necessarily mean rentals will stay low. Rentals will keep rising too. And then the bigger problem sets in. At some point, the consumer gets very angry, and then you have social unrest. So it is in the interest of everyone to collaborate together and work out a realistic, practical solution to all of this here and keep politics out of it. It'll never happen, but you have to have a dream. Right. I mean, I think you're, you're probably right. It's not going to happen. And NIMBY is such a powerful thing. Yes, I want housing, but I want it on the other side of town or the next town or two towns over. So, Mickey... Leonard is, brings up a sensitive point here. You definitely need to have the government involved to create more affordable housing to subsidize and whether they do it directly via rent vouchers or through tax incentives to builders. Do you think the luxury consumer cares about that anymore? I mean, because you have to have buy-in from the high end here. You've got to have people who have money really feel, oh, this is an issue. I mean, yes, they all complain that there's homeless people on the streets of New York or San Francisco, which the homeless situation is, are terrible. And they're, they're not the only cities where it's a problem. But how do you think we sell, as Leonard said, how do we sell this to them? Well, you know, when it comes to affordable housing, I mean, look, the reality is it's a crisis around the world because if you look at all these rich enclaves and even in big cities such as Miami, the people who serve the uber-wealthy or even the wealthy, they can't afford to live in the same town, right? And their commutes are killing. I mean, they have to literally travel one hour, one and a half hours, one way to get there. You know, you also have another situation where people look at these office towers and say, you know, why don't we convert them? What they don't realize is that these office towers, basically the developers took loans from the banks and there are certain terms per square foot rates. And to basically change that to residential requires permission from the city and then the banks will relent. So you don't have an easy solution there. The third thing is build the affluent like to have people who are not affluent around them very doubtful because the affluent like to surround themselves with people like them. And it's always a case of nimbyism, not in my backyard. So if you're doing affordable housing, it will require government policy. It'll also require, I hate, I hate taxes, but it'll require the government to take a look at second and third homes. And basically, uh, you have this in some other countries where the tax rates are very high for, you know, people who own second and third homes. And that helps them basically get rid of second and third homes. One thing we've not discussed is in the pandemic, Companies such as BlackRock and Blackstone went bought a boatload of inventory yes. out there. They bought all these homes out there. They've locked it up for investment purposes. Eventually, some of those homes will come back on the market. So we have to factor in all of this stuff that's uh, happened because of speculation and investment. And that's tightened the market for people, for first-time buyers in all these cities. So it's unfortunately, in as much as I'm a capitalist, the affordable housing crisis will require the hand of government working alongside developers to give them proper incentives and also then working with communities. You go to California, and there are certain cities that basically have banned any new development. I mean, that's it. Close the door behind you. Don't let anyone exactly. else in. Exactly. Right. 
you always, when you're at that level of wealth, you only want to surround yourself with people like you. So the idea of mixed use can survive in a city such as New York because we have to live cheek by jowl with buildings that are not so good. But when you have planned communities or you have communities where you have estates and you have open land and then you have houses, it's a little more difficult there. I also think we shouldn't forget that there's affordable housing, there's billionaire housing, and we keep forgetting about the people in between. There should be (laughs) middle-class housing too. Middle-class housing is probably under the biggest attack of all. And I think in that lies extraordinary opportunity for building, but I think it requires some government intervention. I always tell my wealthiest clients that if we don't think it's our problem now, it will be sooner or later because there are a lot more less wealthy people than there are rich people. And that means elections. And then all of a sudden you have these extreme swings to the other side where you will have social programs coming in place, rent controls, and all other sorts of crazy government stuff that they will really resent much more than having some kind of practical, smart housing policy that create affordable housing, middle-class housing, and actually there's a shortage of super luxury housing too, by the way. That's unbelievable because if you thought the $7 trillion stimulus that took place in the last three years is a lot of money, Brace yourself for the 60 trillion plus transfer of wealth that's coming over the next 10 years, 20 years, from older generations to younger generations, it's happening already. You have one billionaire and then you have 10 beneficiaries, that's 10 more homes needed. Right. People have not factored that in and I think government is so distracted with all sorts of petty BS instead of focusing on the really important topics that require urgent attention because these things cannot happen overnight. They take months and years of planning to actually deliver an end product. Well, it's interesting, I couldn't agree with you more, all of you, three of you, but it does seem like they're starting to be more, again, in the press with the bad headlines, but there's some good headlines, good stories now about affordable housing at ADUs. There was a the Times Magazine a couple of weeks ago did a story about affordable housing rentals in Vienna and how that system works so successfully. And I do think there's starting to be more attention paid to it. Everything we are doing, all the policies we've put together around the world, is geared to generating wealth. And unfortunately, it's going to create, as Lennon suggested, a social problem in a decade's time or less. You'll have vast social unrest. And that's the reason why you're seeing Latin America basically turning left. And what happens when Latin America turns left? All that wealth there moves out again and is moving to Spain. I was in Spain a few months ago. Madrid's got a housing crisis. Just a few years ago, the Madrid housing surplus. market had crashed. Yes, it, it had crashed. Surplus, and I didn't now, know that. Yeah, and, now, and all that money is coming into Miami. It's going everywhere else. So every time there's a left-wing government in Latin America, the United States benefits and Europe benefits, right? So there's so much money. It's just sloshing around. All right, I want to get back to something that's a little bit more immediate, shall we say, than throwing over the government and instituting all new housing policies. <laughs> Clearly, what you're all saying is that the, the demand is greater than the supply when it comes to practically, I guess, on every price point in real estate at the moment. The supply cannot meet the demand. But of course, as you were saying, Mickey, people still have things that they want, that they dream of, that it's going to entice them to give up their 3% mortgage and buy something new. Leonard, I'd love to start with you. What do you think people are looking for now 
what is the, the thing that a house or an apartment will have that will seal the deal? What do people want? I see people varying anywhere from a Warren Buffett who would be very comfortable mm -hmm. in a modest house mm -hmm. all the way to another billionaire who wants a $200 million Tato under-designed mansion on the water's edge like Beyonce and Jay-Z mm -hmm. just bought. Right. The variables within what people want is disturbingly broad. And I think it's almost, real estate has become like fashion. There is no one fashion trend anymore. Right. Well, that's uh, good. I think that that's exciting. I think it's very exciting because I think it's different strokes for different folks. Some people are happy with certain things that others would find deplorable, frankly. Um, you know, I think when you talk about a Bentley Tower, for someone that is a dream apartment and it's spectacular. For others, they wouldn't be caught dead walking into the building. So there are different products for different kinds of people. And what the person next wants, I don't know because who is that person? You really have to be very, very specific. Very, okay. very, very specific. And you know what? I think Diana Freeland said it beautifully. She said, don't give them what they want. Give them what they don't know they want next. Right. It's good advice. You've got to seduce your audience. Okay. But Amanda, I'll ask you this. So what is a, somebody who is a home builder? What do they do in the, in the face of that, that there's such a broad array of what people are looking for, what's going to entice them or what's going to get them to ooh and ah and say, this is the place I want to live. What would a home builder do? How do you react to that? Yeah, I think Leonard's spot on that we are seeing a big trend toward personalization, right? People have spent so much time in their homes over the past couple of years that they really understand what they want and what they need out of their homes. And they now know how they want to live, what they want their homes to be to them. And so as a result, we are seeing really personalized features like uh, steam ovens and pizza ovens and she sheds and putting greens. Those features are commanding sale premiums. Homes that have them are selling for up to 5.3% more than similar homes that don't have these features. So yes, I think that leading into to personalized features, giving people options, right, of how they want to live, different floor plans and configurations. I think that's, that's sort of where we're headed. People want to be able to customize their homes and customize their spaces. And that's a big post-pandemic trend. I think the biggest and best amenity you could deliver with any luxury product today, it would be the amenity. Deliver, home delivered with interior designer. Because if that could happen where it is customized to their own specific need, that's the next level of luxury now. So in other words, the designer would be involved right from the beginning. I think if there was a designer who could customize, even if it's post-closing, mm -hmm. but maybe even doing some things pre-closing, right. right. those would be uh, really high-value amenities to any luxury product, whether it's a home or anything else. Fantastic. Well, I have one. I want each of you to get out your crystal ball because I'm going to one last question. Mickey, why don't we start with you? What do you see happening in the market in the next six months and in the next year? Well, it depends on which end of the market you're tackling. Okay. So I'll stick to my knitting of... Uh, okay. You know. <laughs> you're Mr. High-End Guy. Well, the thing is, look, I continue seeing the generation of wealth, added generation of wealth. Uh, you're going to see... I mean, look at Apple today. They made the announcement about their new goggles, right? The company is just... Uh, few points shy of their all-time stock price high. $3 trillion company. 
I guarantee you that company will be a $5 trillion company in two years if China and the United States don't have a kind of military confrontation. You're going to see tremendous generation of wealth. The demand for high-end properties will be there, but the buyer is discerning. What we're seeing is inventory is still tight. Uh, days on market has increased dramatically, depending on where you are. But I don't see a slackening of demand for unique properties. A stock market supercharged, continuing to fuel a demand for exclusive housing around the world. So I don't want to sound like a cheerleader for wealth. <laughs> but I think as long as the fundamentals of the core economy stay strong, the stock market is strong, governments are stable, and we don't go to war, I foresee the next year to be a continuation of what we have. And Amanda, what do you think is in store? I think the number one thing we should keep our eye on is mortgage rates. I think mortgage rates are going to have a huge impact on what happens with the market this year and the market's momentum. You know, if rates fall, you can expect the market's going to heat up because we've got all this pent up demand. People are going to keep flooding in, right? If mortgage rates rise or they remain really volatile, that's going to chill buyer and seller activity. You know, I think we are expecting that rates are going to fall a little bit this year, but nobody can really count on a consistent downward trajectory for rates, right? And of course, nobody is predicting we're coming down to 3% ever again, right? Uh, so I think rates are going to come down a little bit. I think we're going to see home prices stabilize at a normal pace of growth, right? So 3 to 5% annual growth. And the housing market is going to be a lot healthier. And I think that's going to give a lot of people a lot more confidence to move. You know, I think when we saw gas prices spike, right, it was what, a year ago, everybody kind of put their plans on hold, right, to see if they would come back down. Well, it was the same idea with mortgage rates, right? As rates spiked, everybody put plans on hold. Well, now it's the new normal. People are driving again, right? And people are going to get back into the market and start buying and selling again once they've sort of accepted this new normal. And that's where we're heading. It's a new normal in real estate. Right. All right, Leonard, you get the last word. Besides personalization, what's going to happen? I think I wouldn't know what happens in the next six months, but I would say within the next 12 months, it is probable that we will realize, or we can be certain that the Fed raised rates too far too fast. And they didn't give that enough time to really permeate throughout the markets. We've seen already some really serious impact from that. And I think it has really thrown a lot of home buyers off their balance very quickly. And I think they were the first probably to feel the pain of that, as did builders with much higher borrowing rates. But now I think we're beginning to see with the SVB and a whole host of other failures that there are serious consequences to raising rates that quickly. And I would say within the next 12 months, more than likely there'll be a pullback in those rates. And as Amanda said, when those rates come down and they will come down, will they go to 2%? No, I doubt that. I think that was excess that will not be repeated for many years. But I think when those rates come down, there will be an unleashing in the market. And there's no more frightening unleashing than pent up demand. We've seen what is happening in the travel industry. You've seen what's happened in the paper towel industry in 2020 when there's unleashed demand. Things go nuts. So I am of the belief that anyone today who is buying at a higher rate maybe has a little bit more opportunity to negotiate, might have a little bit less competition, 
may be able to buy their furniture at a little bit of a discounted rate because the retailers have overstocked a little bit. And a year from now, they might be throwing a party to celebrate that smart choice because I think going forward, especially on the high end, we will experience a luxflation, the likes of which we've never seen before. If a Chanel bag costs double today than what it cost five years ago, imagine what happens when confidence returns to markets. Good point. So I could say that our audience, most of them designers, have good times to look for. Is that true? <laughs> Definitely. Agree? I think the future of interior design has never been stronger, frankly. This has been so fascinating. And I have to say, it gives me hope in terms of, yes, there's a lot of problems in terms of affordable housing, but I do think people love their homes. I mean, COVID was proof of that. Now people are traveling, they can do more things, and maybe there's a little bit of a slowdown. But I think the, the primacy of home has been established. You know, outdoor spaces, gardens, all of that stuff has proved to people how much they improve their lives. And I think you guys are in great shape in terms of real estate in the future. And I think our audiences as well. So I want to thank my wonderful guest, Amanda Pendleton, Leonard Steinberg, and Mickey Alam Khan. So thank you all and thank everyone for listening to the Cherry Podcast. You've been listening to the Cherish Podcast, brought to you, of course, by Cherish, which was recently voted by the readers of USA Today as the best place to shop online for furniture and home decor. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend or colleague. Or better yet, go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We appreciate your help in spreading the word. And we would love your ideas for future episodes. Please email us at podcast at cherish.com. The Cherish Podcast is produced by Britta Muller and engineered by Hangar Studios in New York. Until next time.